0: I get the, the punters too riled up twitch.com Love to cherish you twitch.com. twitch dot com twitching twitching you reach out to me Reach out to me. Gotta go boost this on the bird website for maximum eyeballs. Gotta move this merchandise of the words coming out of my face. We gotta move these refrigerators. We gotta install color TVs. Today we are having a uh, ras cranberry Lacroix, not my preferred. My preferred is the heart as uh, the uh, black cherry polar. Number one, goat. Uh, sadly, it's rarely available at my grocery store, so I end up getting whatever I can. I say cherry over anything other else, then berry over anything else, then watermelon, and then any of the cra- raspberry cranberry type things. Yes, I believe that the goat, the goat of the flavors is the black cherry. It, 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 it cuts through. It's efficient in its delivery of a sous-somp of, a of, of uh, juiciness in an otherwise cal- calorically deprived beverage. All right. So today we speak not of fizzy beverages. Today... We speak of Karens. Sing to me, O Muse, of Karens. I know that the, the meme is well dead by now, but I just thought it was useful to make a point about the whole Karen phenomenon in reference specifically to the recent blatant attempt by the president and his minions to ensure that there is not an accurate count of absentee and mail in ballots in the November election. So, obviously, Karen is now quite a worn topic of conversation. No one uses it anymore as a term, other than people who are five, who are always behind the times, not the, not the internet literati. No one would be, no one watching this stream would be so gauche and so uh, behind the times is to, uh, non-ironically, uh, let a Karen loose in, in public. But for a while there, my God, everyone grabbed it. They loved it. Oh, God, they were so happy. It was just a a perfect explanatory concept, a way to take all criticism, a way to take all the things you don't like, categorize them. Very, very efficient uh, and therefore very useful. And so people loved it. And you can talk about how it's a lot of sublimated uh, hostility towards women, you know, like misogyny. On the left, translated towards women that are acceptable to not to not be to hate because they're uh, doing like class based oppression or something when really you're dealing with misogyny. I think that's part of it, but I honestly think that the bigger thing that drove the Karen phenomenon, much bigger than even the the, the suppressed misogyny that it did express in my opinion, uh, was the fact that a lot of things like that, a lot of those terms of abuse that get turned into categories of people that can be immediately dismissed and, and given, you know, two minutes hate about and stereotyped and, and all that uh, are that are expressions of the thing that the person themselves is afraid they are. And people are terrified and you'll see on the, the left side of uh, the internet the number one epithet uh, is liberal. Because everyone is terrified that deep down they're a liberal. Because they don't really know why they believe what they believe. Most people don't. Most of us are only tenuously uh, 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 confident about any of the propositions that we carry around in our head. We mostly keep to them because the social formations that we prefer uh, express them. And then we want to be part of that. And we're expressing something. We're not really believing it in any kind of depth. Uh, And so that makes us all worry, oh God, like where am I wrong? Where's my liberalism? And, uh, and the fact that you have to engage with things like mass media and, uh, uh, and electoral politics and the fact that real like f- guerrilla-style uh, conflict with the state is not something anybody feels would be worth doing, that creates this anxiety around, am I really a liberal? And so the, you have to call everyone else a liberal. Same thing with Karen. Everyone is afraid deep down that they're Karen. And so they have to get someone else to g- call to Karen and to yell at. And that's because we are a nation of Karens in the specific respect that our only recourse on all issues, and especially politics, is to ask to speak to a manager. To ha- to, it is to make a request of some other power to fix our current predicament, to resolve the contradiction that we are currently being enmeshed with and that we are battling. Whatever that contradiction is, Whatever that social political reality, that that loggerhead is, we are instead of embracing our own uh, uh, will, political will, and trying to change it ourselves, we are asking to speak to a manager to have someone else fix it. And you see that I, I can't and I, I've been guilty of this my whole life too, of course. I think I'm not saying this is a point of finger at anyone, I'm saying that this is how we are conditioned to respond to all things, especially politics, to be customers. We are customers. The state is the service. Government is a service. We are customers. Uh, Just like everything else, in every other relationship, we are customers first. That's how we've been able to subsume class so far, by redefining Americans away from being workers to being customers. If you're the one getting the the, uh, actual... If you're the one being served in any situation, even if you work for a wage, even if you are exploited at your job, even if your wages have been stagnant for 40 years... You still are uh, a customer, and that is, it, it, it defeats class consciousness, uh, and it leaves us bereft of anything to do during any conflict and any political question, but ask someone else to fix it, because we don't know how to fix anything, because we're not workers. We're not in a relationship to a means of production that we could collectively interfere with, withdraw our labor from, st- cease to allow to function. We are customers, and all a customer ever has is their voice. All a customer ever has is their willingness to make a scene. And that's, I mean, you could say that that's the whole of politics right now. Even on the the left, even among people who would would rather die than think of themselves as a liberal or a Karen. What they're essentially doing is asking to speak to a manager. We're all doing that. Every tweet that says, reminder, uh, this is all messed up. It's like, who are you talking to? You're asking someone else to do it. Today, swear to God, as if to prove my fucking thesis, there was a trending topic around the liberal freakout, the liberal dawning of recognition that he could steal the election just by not counting mail-in votes. About the post office, they're just, they're literally taking out machines that count ballots. I mean, they're just doing it in front of everyone. And then Trump says that they're going to do it because we don't want them to vote. We don't want their votes to count. It's, it's, there's no hiding it. It's, it's out there and yet, this is the thing that you would reveal in a movie, and that just the, the fact of revealing it is, would stop it, and yet we're at the end of that movie, and then no one's doing anything. And the trending topic was, do something. Who the fuck are we asking to do something? Congress? Each other? We have no idea where the levels of power are, because we don't recognize that they're actually the only ones that matter are within us, acting in concert. Using our power, our labor, collective labor power, and our organization along those lines to refuse to allow the system to continue to, to function. Anything less is an appeal to the manager. And so I have this vision where Trump loses by like 15 million votes, but in an, in, a, in a handful of states that would have given him, that would have given Biden the electoral college win, uh, the ballots just don't go anywhere. They're just they're thrown out in court or something. Some 19-year-old judge uh, that just got appointed. A fucking zygote in a little... Uh, 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 a, a, a fetus in a, in a black robe with a tiny little gavel comes out and goes, yeah, these ballots are bad. Wah. What are people going to do? They're going to wait for somebody else to do something. And we're going to watch the whole thing happen and there's going to be no one... And that's going to be... If that doesn't happen... That process is a, is a, a, a eruption of the, of the subliminal action that's been going on over the past 40 years as the safety net has been destroyed, as crisis capitalism has ripped out the foundations of society and replaced it with nothing, with fucking opiates and, uh, and, uh, and TikTok and vapes and, uh, and uh, constant soul death is that people have been waiting for someone to do something and it never arose. And one of the big reasons nobody ever did anything is because there was always the appeal to the electoral process. This sucks, but the only real way, the only realistic way we can organize against it is at the ballot box. We don't have enough social cohesion to do something like have a general strike. We We do not have the social networks that could sustain that or coordinate it. But we do have enough of a social network to coordinate enough to vote for someone to represent us, get into power and prevent the bad things from happening and maybe do good things. And the thing is is that that's not an entirely uh, insincere or uh, false argument. Like in the absence of a real organized left, electoral politics has to be a scene of struggle because it's the only one we have. It's the only place where there's a level of participation and, and social coordination that can be in any way influenced. Everything else is too, is too flousy. It's, it's, it's just water flowing out getting uncaught by the bucket. And so there's always, oh, things are getting bad, but we can vote. And this time, even more than 2000, I mean, 2000 was a theft, but it was, it was a slow-motion theft, and all the forms were observed. Here, months before the election, you have them saying explicitly, we are going to make it so that these votes don't count. We are going to make it so that we can swing this election on our front. Why would we want to let them ha- sort the sort the ballots? That means that people will be able to count the ballots. He said that. So the last layer, the last layer of justification and the highest level of uh, of like political uh, spectacle has now lost its ability to serve as a shield, to serve as a screen for what's really going on. Is what's what it's there for. It's superstructural. The superstructures exist to obscure the reality of the social relationship, to mystify it. And now the last bastion of it will have been made translucent with no response. Why? Because the social uh, cohesion, the social fabric necessary, the class uh, culture, the organic working class culture necessary to resist it has been destroyed never really built up enough in this country anyway in the first place, but even brought down from that level to a point where it cannot respond to even, even the last illusory notions of participatory democracy being replaced by the full acknowledged overrule of minority uh, oligarchy. But again, I have no idea what's going to happen. Shruggy emoji. I always have to end all of these rants and, and, uh, and cosmic visits, visions, visions with, an, uh, with a stipulation that, hey, I didn't know fucking Trump was going to win the first time. I don't know anything. And I sure as shit don't know... Uh, I don't know what of the million of things that could happen in terms of the intersection of Trump's uh, cack-handed attempts to rig the election and like the real like, nature of his declining, uh, political constituency, and the reality of a, of a, of a incumbent president presiding over depression-era economic conditions. It's such, there's so many variables, dude, it's a fucking... I mean, as always, the worst outcome is the most predictable, As it has been so far, the worst outcome has been what's come true, basically, at every level. We even got the boringest vice presidential candidate with the less, you can, with the fewest jokes. My God. I mean, obviously, the easy thing to say, because it's the the most likely to be true, and it's easiest to predict, is that instead of having some sort of collapse epic collapses of in institutions and, and then break up of, of governance and, and the world market, you'll have a steady and slow subsumption of all into that market. Uh, and then it will not be without disruptions that could be called apocalyptic. But the thing is, is that they will be, because of our hyper-normalized reality, instantly metabolized into the, the substance of, of uh, existence. So they are not perceived, by those who survive them anyway, they are not percei- perceived as apocalyptic. Because they are turned into they're turned into oh that's what it's like now oh this is how things are now oh this is the thing, and so at no point will there be that break that we're all praying for secretly that since the '90s we've been ritually trying to bring about like EVO Shandor and the fucking Ghostbusters building, trying to bring in the evil energies to crack open the fucking veil between us and reality because we cannot bear this 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 tawdry and empty spectacle any longer, this disgusting dance macabre across across a dead landscape of fucking mini-malls and, and uh, concrete and, 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 a, and a reified uh, market system that destroys all human autonomy and, and here, spiritual meaning. And everything that happens that makes it worse will just be another thing that now is part of it. Like, if you talk... If you, like, the, the American workplace, like the gig economy reality of working in America would look like some sort of post-apocalyptic neo-feudal imposition on people in the high modernist, uh, uh, main uh, high point of American history. I mean, look at what's going to happen with climate change. Not an apocalypse. Slow and steady consumption. Like Florida. Florida is going to go away bit by bit. Miami is going to go away. And it's just going to be, yeah, well, Miami, I mean, come on. What was it doing there? Re- not realistic, not very realistic, dummies. Uh, and then the rest of it'll go, and that's just the way things are. And this is going to cause mass dis- despoilation of life, mass death, billions of death, baby. Depending on how it shakes up. But those de- th- those who die, will not be part of the narrative of civilization. They will be those unpeople. So society will not have broken down, even as huge chunks of it no longer function. They will just be gangrenous limbs cut off from the world market. And within the cocoon, within the remaining cocoon, things will be kind of the same, only worse every day. Until we have been subsumed into this massive neural network, this this hive mind of capitalism where we are all uh, individual um, transistors. And the thing is, is that the search for, uh, for uh, like, communism, the, the, the pursuit of pursuit of socialized production, at, the, at, at, the, at this point of capitalist, like, productive capacity, that is the challenge to turn the human race into one collective consciousness uh, that is itself, that is all of it, that is additive, that is all human minds together, as opposed to what capitalism seeks, which is to subsume all of uh, what makes us human out of humanity and turn us into pure non-conscious stimulus-response transmission vectors. So we're going to be part of one big network brain. The fucking nationalists who talk about how, you know what, uh, 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 we need the nation state. say it. Yes, yes, you have to deal with nationalism in the reality, in the, in the here and now, but I'm talking about at a pure, at a purely theoretical level, nationalism is absurdity, uh, and it will not sustain human life. It will have to be done away with. Now, that doesn't mean you can walk around in 2020 telling Americans that America sucks because they're not going to have it, because they haven't gone to the same class as you have. But I do think that that's different than saying that it's inherently good. But I'm saying it's going to go away one way or the other. All these, all these categories we think are discreet about humans are going to go away. And the question is, are they going to come together? Is it the final uh, transcendent moment? Or are they going to wink out and be replaced by, by just dead circuitry? But along that way, there'll be no apocalypse. When you're, in the, when you're in the slurry vat pushing the buttons to keep the slurry coming into your mouth, that will not, be, that will not feel like it's a post-apocalypse. You will feel a continuum because the the because the the cultural uh, firmament and and the uh, probably even like the political uh, uh, architecture are going to be not if not the same over time, only changing slowly, ship of Theseus style until there's something else. That's the most likely outcome, and it's not that hard to say it, because duh, but we're also here. We have free will, to the degree we're unaware of our aroundings, and that's totally, we have free will, and we have the responsibility to ourselves and each other to prevent that from happening if if we can, and even if we can't, because a life spent in the pursuit of the virtuous end will be a more rewarding life and a more meaningful life than one uh, that acknowledges reality. And and accommodates itself to it. Uh, Whoo! Man, that's a good one. Whoo! Throwing darts tonight. Says, rich people are happy. This is a great transition. Thank you so much. Someone says, I don't know, man, rich people are happy. Someone pointed this out uh, to me uh, on the internet today. It is a it is uh, a little delightful little article uh, about Sumner Redstone, the media, mo- uh, the media giant, one of the, one of the guys who created the modern media landscape, uh, specifically um, specifically like the cable television concept. He was the CEO of Viacom. Uh, and he died like they all do at 97 years old, they live forever because God delights in human evil and their ability to suck vampire-like the life essence of the working people that they exploit, it really does give them a natural long life. I mean, that's it's a metaphor, you know, and it's not literal, but like the adrenochrome notion, that is just a, 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 a mythic reinterpretation of the, of the real flow of life energy down to up in capitalism. Uh, but he died at 97. R.A.P. to a real one. But there was an article about his death, about his last days, that I wanted to find here. Uh, fuck. No, I'll go here. Because, yes, I'm sure that Sumner Redstone had a great life. I'm sure, cumulatively, he had a great time. More good days than bad. A lot of delicious steaks. A lot of a lot of hot dames, uh, b- hot air ballooning, uh, eating children's brains if he wanted to, all the fun you can have in this life he had it. But listen to this. Uh, but listen to this article, CNBC. Some, uh So this was. Oh no, never mind. Never mind. Uh, this is... Yes, it's about his last days, but it actually came out two years ago. I thought this was like his... Just came out, but apparently this has been his life for at least like four years. So this was his life. The last four years of his life. This was him. Uh, media mogul Sumner Redstone, who maintains vocal, vo- voting control over CBS and Viacom, has resorted to communicating through an iPad, reloaded with audio clips of his voice saying yes, no, and fuck you. Uh, The ailing 94-year-old is currently caught in the middle of merger talks between two companies, CBS close to making an all-stock offer for Viacom. Uh, This is not the one. There's another article. Does anyone know the article I'm talking about? Well, I can't find the goddamn thing. But anyway, the story is, is that apparently in his last days he was re- reduced in his mental capacity to just his most base urges. Uh, and he was just based, like frantically trying to fuck. Like, trying to get his dick hard. And I know that that's a common thing with dementia patients is that, that they get like sexually compulsive as they age, but I don't think that there's any reason to think that Redstone... Uh, was not, I mean, just think about it. For someone who devotes their life to sensual pleasure and exploiting others for their own stockpiling of sensual pleasure, your ability to enjoy it is attenuated over time. So even if, as you live longer because you have all the life extension powers of the vampire that you are, your ability to enjoy that life drains out of you. Not only do things just get less novel over time, and if you have money, you can do everything, which means everything gets less novel, but your ability to enjoy them, your actual sensory ability to enjoy them goes down because, I mean, if you like fucking, your dick stops working. Uh, If you like eating, you get your taste buds. Your Things are shutting down. No matter, until they invent some sort of machinery to stop it, your brain, entropy, baby. Uh, Those telomeres are bitch- And so you get whittled. So you can't even have the sensory pleasures you once were, and they're at their least. So at a time when you would need them to be the most sensually overwhelming as possible to make up for the fact that they're old, you can have them. It's it's the fucking guy with the, with the fucking apples. Who's the one? The Greek guy. The guy with the apples. Can't stop eating apples. Never gets full. And so the only thing in your life that had meaning is now something you can't indulge with. And you're left with only a growing recognition of your body's uh, impermanence and your impending end, and how and the world ending with your consciousness, or the world ending and going beyond, and the world continuing beyond your consciousness is unconceivable. Because your consciousness is the only thing that you credit as existing, and you live that way, even if you don't think that's how you think, that's how you behave, and so your last years are torture, are torture, and you might say. Well, hey, I'd take that deal. Yeah, a lot of people would. That's why there's so many fucking assholes in the world. Tantalus. I thought it was Tantalus, but then uh, I thought he couldn't get, I thought the thing was he couldn't get the the apples. I'm talking, but he can eat the apples. And of course, like, that's why they're all trying to extend their lives unnaturally, that's why they're all trying to go to the moon, that's why they're all trying to live forever, that's why they want the singularity, because they think, oh, I'll do it on the computer, and my circuits will never die, and I'll be able to get infinite amounts of pleasure, an infinite amount of experience. But of course, that's fantasy. That's a delusion. These people are deluded. That's one of the big reasons that I do not credit AI as a threat the way these people ever do. AI, these people freaking out about AI, is, it's just backhanded congratulations of themselves. They think, God, I'm so smart, I've created a thing that's going to destroy civilization. Take a fucking break, pal. I mean, like, Oppenheimer could say that, but this is the fucking Roomba is not, is not the A-bomb, okay? And also it's because they, uh, like at this point, they have their entire uh, metaphysical... All their metaphysical chips on the board are pushed towards uh, uh, artificial intelligence becoming sufficiently uh, similar to human intelligence to allow transference of consciousness from one format to the other. Their entire worlds depend on that. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they're destroying people. That's why they're drinking blood, so that they they can make some sort of pact with the devil to get out of the deal of being a human being. But it's not going to work. Our assumption that it'll work—it's like does—does does any of this look like it's working? And I know people will say, "Oh yeah, no, it's working for the people at the top who are hyper-exploiting." Yes, but the, there's a frenzy behind all of this that indicates the sickness at the center of the machine. And of course, it's better to be rich than poor. That's why people shouldn't be poor. We should get rid of that shit. I'm just saying is that like the uh, the 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 tragedy of human existence is something that cannot be transcended, regardless of where you end up, in the Rawlsian state of nature. Where else you get thrown out of the out of the butthole of the of the random human uh, uh, circulator from the ve- and then. Th- pushed through the veil of ignorance like Jim Carrey going out of a rubber rhinoceros ass. I mean, AI is not the same as capitalism, the algorithm taking over. Because the algorithm already exists. Like you don't have to invent AI for the algorithm. All of it is a question of his efficiency of transmission of the algorithm through physical space. It already exists. Something separate, like a like a like a machine consciousness that is not just the algorithm of capitalism? No. Uh uh-uh. uh Someone uh is thanking me for the, uh, for hosting uh, a screening of Gremlins 2 with Joe Dante that we did a few years ago in LA I want, and, and thank you for saying thank you I just that, that was a great night and I wanted to just say thank you for reminding me that was a lot of fun uh, getting to see Gremlins 2 which is a movie that I've worshipped since I was a kid saw it on VHS uh, was actually tricked at the beginning by the VHS specific uh, fake out in the middle I uh, think it's a seminal film Joe Dante, one of the great American directors, Uh, getting able to see it in the theater with him, every laugh hit, every joke hitting like a fucking neutron bomb, everyone having a great time, Uh, and then Joe getting to take questions and and get to talk about a movie that did not do well at the time and was one of the things that sort of contributed to Joe Dante losing his ability to get whatever he wanted made that he had there for a minute, which is tragic because it's such a brilliant fucking film. Uh, But I think he said something about enjoying getting to see it And it's getting to see people like it and noticing that, no, this was a good idea. You were not wrong. The fucking suits were wrong, as always. But also, if you haven't seen Gremlins 2, that's another big recommend from me. And The Burbs is amazing, too. I would... If COVID ever ends, uh, I would like to go back to L.A. and do a screening of The Burbs, too. Because I think that's... It's a one-two punch, man. Uh, in terms of like, and also if you want to get like political, which I don't, you think you have to with those movies, but they are both really perceptive, uh, uh, uh artistic expressions of real phenomenon happening, like suburban ennui and alienation and, uh, and like, uh, the, the emergence of like the techno finance economy, uh, mwah. Yeah, the death of the mid-budget movie, man. That's a real bummer. It's a real bummer, man. And the thing is, that's the kind of stuff that would be perfect for... Like, that is exactly the kind of art that public funding, like public arts, is best for. Because, like, low-budget movies, I'm, you don't really need the government, you know? Like, it, it, you should have foundations and stuff for people who are, like... Uh, I'm talking, though, about, like, a relatively even playing field here where we've eliminated massive amounts of poverty... In that situation, low-budget movies should be like a hobby thing. Uh, and big-budget movies, I mean, if they were to still exist, if you had enough money circulating for that to be worthwhile doing, which is, I think, a big if, uh, but if that were to happen, they're for everybody, you know? They're gonna, The market's going to make them no matter what. Those mid-budget movies, they need there to be a dimension beyond profit in the calculation of whether to make it or not. And there used to be, and now there aren't. And that's a real thing where you can say, the system is not really different, but over time it accumulates uh, pathologies because as that profit, it's really, so much of this shit comes down to the fact that, that things other than profit that used to be built into the architecture of American capitalism and, and art uh, were there because they could be in the minds of the bean counters, in the minds of the bondholders, in the minds of, of, of the, in the mind that isn't a mind of the global market economy, they could be afforded. Profit rates were such that they could be indulged, and people could... Because people don't want to be a mere instrument of an algorithm. No one wants that. They fight against it, even if they're part of it, even if they do well out of it. And cultural superstructures created in part by people trying to alleviate that sense of being instrumentalized by capitalism. Uh, and that's... It's it's a double-edged sword, because like that acclimatizes people to capitalism, like all superstructural culture does. But at the same time, it means the stuff is better. It means the actual art, even though it's compromised by capitalism, is better. And more and more it has more qualities and, and it has a richerness to those qualities. And that gets squeezed out like a toothpaste as the profit falls and the need for return increases. The ability to lose money on things that aren't sure, things that are part of the algorithm, is squeezed out of the system too. And it's it's and that's where the government could stand in and be like, this shit should be made because it'd be cool. Ah, uh, someone's asking about digital art. I think it's one of those things where I'm of two minds. Part of me is, like, there are some elements of it, like squibs, where I think, no, this is objectively wrong. Don't do this. But other things like CGI where I kind of acknowledge, I'm just, I have a different frame of reference. Like, I think that, here's an example. I find, and I've always found, matte paintings and rear projection in films charming, fun, and even if you can see it, even if you can notice it, it does not really disrupt my... Uh, my suspension of disbelief. I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. Whereas, I think somebody who grows up with digital art, they see a, 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 a flat screen, they, or they see a, a like a stop motion, or they see a, uh, a rear projection or a matte painting, and they think, wait a minute, that's fake. And the thing is, from certain perspectives, like fluidity of motion and like seamlessness, it is faker. But they, to them, that fakeness is, is throbbing. It, it pops out because of their, their seamlessness of their, of their cultural context. I didn't come from that. I come a little older, so I still value it. So that's a thing where I could say it's, uh, it's, it's subjective. But, uh, man, I was just, I had a chill today. I, think, I was thinking about squibs again, which I'm always doing. Never 10 minutes away from thinking about squibs. They say, they say the average man thinks about sex every eight minutes. Uh, that's me with squibs. Every eight minutes, thinking about squibs. Getting mad about, now there's no squibs anymore. And it occurred to me in horror that because of the whole, because of the new uh, uh, economic dynamic around firearms and movies, it, it's just, it's cost prohibitive on the, on, on the basic slat to do indulgent shit like use incredibly expensive cameras or use rare film, you have to fight for that. It's it's not it's not included in the suite. It's been seamlessly removed, which means that in the future, real guns firing blanks and real squibs are going to only be featured in films that are doing it as a self-conscious artistic choice, that are doing it as part of a broader thing, like movies that are in black and white, now. That are that are that are conceptual. And that means that. Everything else, all the genre movies that I would love to enjoy, and are at the level of we're not trying to deconstruct anything, we're not making an artistic point, we're just doing an action movie. It's gonna be off the table. As much as it would be to film one in fucking uh uh in like the Academy ratio and black and white like the lighthouse. That's a bummer, man, and I think it's true. I I can't really think I can't really Imagine that that's not the case now. Especially with everybody streaming every movie now on those dog shit fucking streaming links where, like, you can't even get really black or anything and it's just less saturated and everyone's on their dang phone. And Now I sound like Andy Rooney. I was trying to be even-handed there and then I ended up turning into Andy Rooney. The squibs will do that to me. Oh, Danny boy, the squibs, the squibs are calling. From glen to glen and down the mountainside, the sun is gone and all the waves are falling. Mm. What's my favorite nugget sauce? Szechuan, baby. No, I had the Szechuan sauce. It was dog shit. not even disappointing compared to the ridiculous high, because nothing could have been that good. Considering the cultural, the amount of cultural ink and energy spent on a dipping sauce at McDonald's, how good it would have had to have been to make that in any way proportional. It would have had to have been the best tasting food on earth. Uh, it's like the fucking squeezed, like, uh, it's like they took the, the, uh, like an ibis and like wrung out its spinal column or something. It would have to be made of ground unicorn horn or something. But even for a McDonald's sauce, it was dog shit. Very, very sweet. It was basically just a sweet and sour sauce. I was thinking the reason I actually did kind of, I'll admit, get a little excited about it when they brought it back is because when they said Szechuan sauce, that made me think of Szechuan pepper sauce, like with the red, like with the peppercorns, you know? in Szechuan cuisine, and I thought, oh, oh shit, fuck, that'd be good. Uh, But no, it was just another sweet and sour sauce. It was dog shit. And the funny thing is, is they introduced it after the big fuck up. They introduced it and they said, hey, we have it now. Hey, guys, we have it. We have Szechuan sauce. And it lasted like two weeks because nobody gave a shit. And it wasn't good enough to stick around. I would say of the mass market ones you can get, I like ranch but I also like, uh, barbecue. I suspect that my favorite sauce, if it could be found, if someone could make this, if a, if a, if like a, a Chick-fil-A or a Wendy's or McDonald's made this, they would have my, my business for life. A, a nugget dipping sauce based on, uh, Korean red pepper paste—the stuff they use on uh, on the Korean fried chicken. It's it's it's. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, that is the bomb. That stuff is awesome, and if I could dip those mofo, go, go chujang, go chujang. That's it. A go chujang pepper paste, because the thing about it is I wanted to have I wanted to have a velvety texture, but I also want like or ketchupy umami residents, and I don't want that spice. It's perfect. So yes, that stuff. Oh, I'm really hungry. I haven't had dinner yet. I can't wait. What am I going to get? What am I going to get? Maybe I'll get nuggets. Ha! <laughs> you guys have inspired me. But I, maybe I wouldn't get nuggets because I don't have any of that paste, and it would feel like, actually, I might have that paste. Oh, my God, I might have that paste, guys. Oh my god, guys. If I have that stuff, it's happening. Hey, guys. Feeling good. Feel like this has been a good stream. Good mixture of the high and the low. The Dionysian and such. And the. uh, What's the other one? Uh, The Apollonian. That's it. Dionysian and the Apollonian. Uh, you guys, I gotta admit, someone's asking about how much I go outside uh, and if I feel panicked. I gotta say, I kind of... I It's not that I don't care about getting it. It looks terrifying, and I really don't want to get it. Uh, but... Uh... I kind of am not really that afraid of getting it. I I think that we've reached, at least where I live, a a mask saturation point that when I go out, I don't feel that scared. I don't get, I'm not uh, willy-nilly about it, of course. I keep my distance and I keep my mask on. Uh, But I feel like enough people are doing that and, and everything is distanced enough that I'm not really feeling like I'm taking my life in my hands that much anymore. But, I mean, I could get it, but, you know, you get killed walking your doggy. Oh, that's a funny idea. Someone said there should be an official chapel mask where it's the soy face. God, the Nazis would get so mad because they thought that up we stole it from him. Tough shit, motherfucker. That's what happens. Maybe if you value jacking off in the bank lobby less, you could get some bits out. Do I feel that the left is due for a spiritual awakening? I have to say, I mean, I've said on the show explicitly, yes. I mean, I've been saying that for a while now. I have been saying that spirituality needs to be enmeshed with practice now and with analysis to overcome the... Sort of this uh, liberal hedonic treadmill loggerheads we're at, Uh, and I think it's going to happen. I just don't know if it's what form it's going to take or whether it's going to be effective. That's that's the big. Those are the big questions, as always. But I also think it's going to happen because I've been, as I've been talking about it, people have talked to me about what they're thinking, and a lot of people I know, including people who do not even listen to this shit and have no idea what I'm yelling about on the goddamn internet, have come to the same conclusion and are trying to move like graspingly towards that direction. And I feel like that's very good. I don't know what direction it'll take, but I, so far I have faith that, that, we'll, that I think people get it, I think enough people get it that you could build a kernel of something. And that's all we can ask for right now because for the love of God, you can't get ahead of yourself. Numbers are so small. Getting the people on your side is a real, real challenge. And I think people say, well, we're totally atomized how that's ever, you know, we're totally pleasure-seeking, but, like, the pleasure is getting attenuated very quickly. And that's, that's one of the situations that can lead people towards change. And I, hate, I know it's awful to have to depend on individual, like, awakenings, as I have said, that's not how change happens in the mass, but the traditional methods are kind of dead right now. I guess it's less a question of, like, who to appeal to and more a question of what appeal needs to be made. Can dialectics defeat the demiurge? Uh, I mean, yeah, they better. Ha! <laughs> they better, because that's that's the only thing they could. Can we get that spiritual awakening by normalizing psychedelics? I hate to do any of that normalizing stuff because one. I think it's sort of a trap to say that you can normalize something, because then it gives more weight to your individual indulgence and speech about said. Uh, then is warranted by the actual weight of the act, and then conversely, it provides you with a cudgel. Like if you hate somebody and they're not doing anything outwardly really terrible, they're not. They're not doing it. They're not saying any of the uh, the prescribed curse slurs. And they're not—they're not, they're not uh, doing any of the, the the dog whistles. You can say that they're normalizing something bad. You can say like, and then then you're already halfway there to to righteousness. But uh, the problem with the psychedelic thing is, it's the same problem as like getting—it's the same problem inherent in people who think that you can do something like have Robin DeAngelo struggle session stand racism. They both they both assume a subject who is already halfway to your position. They assume a subject who is voluntarily in a room having accepted your certain opening premise that you could then build a psych- psychedelic experience on top of or build a uh, a, note, a recognition of my own racial privilege on top of. But you're, you're, you're assuming, when you're talking about a, a, an unbounded population, a lot of the assumptions built in, our assumptions are based around self-selected groups. And when it comes to psychedelics, you have to be taking it on purpose. And you have to have some sort of purpose to it. Now, not necessarily, but it sure as hell uh, makes it a more uh, efficient vector. Uh, Taiping Rebellion, but instead of Jesus, we do it with Marx. You're basically describing the Chinese Revolution. That was that was the uh, that was the Chinese Communist Revolution. Was the Taiping Rebellion with Marx replacing Jesus? Have I ever fired myself? A, um, uh, someone asks if I have ever fired a gun myself. Yes, I fired a number of guns. I mean, uh, I have fired an elephant gun, like, I fired a SKS, which is uh, sort of like a knockoff AK 47, banana clip, pop, 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 uh, I fired a 454 Ksule, which is one of the largest handguns, uh, or the uh, most powerful handguns. Motherfucker kicks like a mule, almost put my arms over my head. Shotgun, ch Lock, Brap! I'm strapped. Not really, but guns are cool. What Shane would I review for Doughboys? Good question. I assume they've covered most of them. If they haven't done Culver's, obviously I would do Culver's. That's a no-brainer. But I've got to assume they've done Culver's already. If not Culver's, I would... If they have not had somebody on that show to defend Arby's, I would defend Arby's for sure. I would do that too. Ah, Of course they did Culver's in a live show, yeah. Maybe a and W. I don't know. I'm trying to think of another one, then. Another, like, something on some sort of, uh... Has anyone talked about that Dickies place? I've never been there. It seems weird. Fast food barbecue restaurant. That seems like a contradiction in terms. We do have A&W in America. Not that many, but I remember going to one as a kid. Oh, God, Rocky Rococo, garbage. Ugh, barf. Oh God, I could do Mission Barbecue. That'd be funny. I would go to Mission Barbecue. I guarantee you that you could go in there without a mask. They don't give a shit. Fazoli's! There is a Fazoli's in Indiana, I think. It's gotta be one of the last ones in America. I would love to go to one of the last Fazoli's because I went to Fazoli's all of the time when I was a kid. Fazoli's was a top tier choice. That was, that was a, I, I, remember, I have a distinct memory of skipping school with some guys and gals uh, senior year, getting a car and going to Fizzoli's. That's how fucking, that's how I partied in high school. Fuck this bullshit. Going to eat these thin ass ravioli with like the ketchup sauce on them. But they had the fucking, they had unlimited breadsticks, baby. you go up there and they bring them around. They had like, they had like half ass table service. They'd bring it around and they'd bring you, they'd have a basket. They'd bring you the, the breadsticks. Oh, hell yeah. If I could find a Fizzoli's, I would absolutely go. Mmm, yes, 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 quite. yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, oh man, I'm getting Prussian reveries thinking about Fazoli's now. I guarantee you if I ate it, it would be like, this is not fit for hogs, this is pig slop, but it would still be funny. Uh, also, another one that was a favorite as a kid that has gone away now, and I think there are still a few are left, Schlotskys. I remember enjoying their weird bread. They're sandwiches at a very, very weird bread. They're Almost unique, sort of the way that uh, in and out fries are unique among fast food fries. And just like with in and out fries, I like it because it's weird and different. And I, I remember liking the weird Schlotsky's bread. And so if there's a Schlotzky's, I would love to go there and get that back. Oh, man, people are saying Shlotsky's is still good. Damn it, I had a chance to go to a Shlotsky's a while ago, and I talk, I said, nah, I just remember it. I remember it as being good, and now people are telling me it rips. Damn it. Next time, I just got to go YOLO on it and say, if it's bad, it's bad. I would love to go to Publix. I've never been. never been. Never spent enough time in the South to go to a grocery store. But I've heard the chicken is very good, and I would like to try it. God damn, I'm I'm gonna ooh ooh I'm gonna nug up I think after this. Big boy needs his treaty treats. A chicken tender sub. See, I don't know if I like that idea. That just seems like it's too much starch. It's like I don't eat the fries and the chicken tenders at the same time. I don't like wrap the chicken tender in French fries and eat it. Why would I want to put a big carb around the fries? To me, there's second... Zaxby's is another one I would like to try. I haven't had that. Yeah, I don't think I like it. It's like, why am I biting through bread to get to breading? Nope. You have not sold me on the concept of a chicken tender sub, I'm afraid. Sorry. I'm just going to get regular chicken. And besides, I always take bone-in over tendies. Tendies are fine once in a while. Tendies and nuggets are fine if you're in the mood. Like I've kind of talked because of the dipping sauces. But it's because of the dipping sauces that's all beef. Let's, let's stop shitting ourselves, okay? All non bone in fried chicken is about the sauce. And it's about what's the easiest way. Oh, boneless? Oh, great. I can stuff this in my mouth fast without having to get around bones. If you want to taste the chicken, if you're about the flavor, you got to have the bone. Got to have bone in. And I'll, I, so I usually want bone in, but once in a while, if it's really because I want to dip something in something, that's when I'm going to get a, a boneless fried chicken item, like canes, uh, not raisin canes. Or no, it is raisin canes, but it is not the guy that uh, Trump talked to, who he loves, uh, who he thought it was raisin. Li- he thought it was raisin, like he thought it was raisin like the fruit. He thought it was raisin like the fruit. Because raising Cane, I think that's like an old-timey saying from the Bible. I don't think he had any... As a little Lord Fauntleroy in crushed velvet pantaloons, in his little gated community in, in Queens, I don't think he knew anything about raising Cane, one way or the other. Now, yeah, like, uh, I think that Cane's is pretty good. It's juicy, which is usually the hard part with wings, or with uh, strip tenders, especially when they're that thick, because they're relatively thick. And it stays juicy. And the breading's fine. But you stay, you come for that sauce. And I do think the sauce is good. But if the sauce wasn't good, I would not think it was good. Raisin Herman Cain. I don't think... I mean, I know people say, wow, things move so fast. It's it, we, we just normalize things. But I really don't think... I don't think enough people emphasized the sheer hallucinatory, mad, Fellini-esque, uh, dark humor of a former presidential candidate, a guy who pulled at the top of the heap in the crowded 2012 field for a while, and if he hadn't stumbled w- under the pressure when he was the frontrunner, if he'd been able to hold up a little stronger, I think he had a very good chance at that nomination because he was wildly and uniquely popular in the South. People loved him in the South, because he was the he was a dream for all the white southern reactionaries who vote in uh, Republican primaries. He was a black guy who said, which meant they weren't racist, and he really loved God and he hated Muslims, and he had like that kind of dumb guy thing that they think is charming because they're all fucking dipshits, and they loved him. If it had gotten to the South, he might have won. This guy goes to a rally to the, for the president not even, it's not even close to the election. It's just as a way for him to get his spirits up because everyone's been saying mean things to him during the COVID quarantine. And he wanted to have people say nice things to him. People talk about his endless campaigning and his rallies and how, oh, he's going to Oklahoma. uh, He's going to Tulsa uh, uh, for Juneteenth. he's, He's signaling the alt right. And, oh, he's going to, he's going, look at the day he's going here and he's trying to what, Trump, what happens with Trump is he watches TV all day, and yes, he watches the people be nice to him on Fox, but he also watches everyone else be mean to him, and it gets him his, his power, his health power levels go down. His power bar depletes. And the only thing that can really top it off, like watching Fox does it a little bit, is getting a rally and having people say he's good. And so, for fucking Kerman Kane, for no reason, and just to own the libs who think that there's really a virus going around, he goes maskless to this rally. Where the highlight was watching the president of the United States during a world-defining crisis brag about how he was able to drink a glass of water with one hand and walk successfully down a fucking very near, uh, a very slight incline while hooting, uh, barbarian slap jaws bang their hooves together, and then he fucking died for that. He died. His ass is dead because he did that. Because he wanted to give the president a little pick-me-up because he was was so shattered. He did drink that water. He did a good job. And the corona, that's not real corona. Just puking my, just just bit right in my face. That's not real stuff. Oh, I don't feel so good. Dead. And his fucking Twitter account is still up and is posting banal mega shit about like Kamala Harris is trying to say that she's a centrist. Girlfriend, you're tripping. The motherfuckers in the ground! That's all of our fates. Just to be this echoing digital signature created by an algorithm meant to, like, represent our entire time on Earth in a little little pithy, little epic uh, sayings that just flatten us into essentially the worst versions of ourselves. Ah. Uh. Jobs I had before I was a podcaster. The longest gig I had was for a number of years I worked at Barnes & Noble. Uh, I was a cashier. I was very frustrated with being a cashier, and thankfully I was able to get moved over to the information desk where I helped people find books, and, that was, and then did stocking and stuff, and that was good. That was probably the best job I had, and the longest I held. Uh, grad student where I was a TA during my abortive, uh, my abortive MA pursuit Uh, I worked, as I've said before, for Regis, the company that goes in and and, uh, inventories, retail retail inventory. And when I was a kid, I was a dishwasher and I uh, I worked at a grocery store unloading the truck before my back, obviously. I gotta say that somebody asked the most subversive book I read, and I did get it at a Barnes & Noble. I saw the title, and it, it just struck me, and I ended up buying it when I was in college, I think. Uh, so, a little older, but, you know, it took me a while to really even think politically. It was, it's a, it's a, by a guy who I don't actually agree with very much anymore. Uh, Derek Jensen, The Culture of Make-Believe, which is, because the thing about him is, is he, he's essentially an and-prim, and, prim, and I, I discount that entire tradition, but... Just in terms of reading something that was so radically at odds with everything I thought I had kind of come to terms with as understanding the world, even through like a jaded, a relatively jaded, like left lens, like I wasn't a chud or anything. Uh, I was like, you know, I I was a, uh, I was not a Bush fan, but it was still relatively, uh, you know, uh, it was a, it was a narrow conception of like why I believe what I believe. And it was such a shock reading it and it was such a challenge that i ended up having to like break down and reconfigure a number of things that i'd held as assumptions and even though i don't think that he's right in any kind of like you know uh, removed uh, objective sense i feel like uh, for me anyway his contribution to my intellectual development was uh, very useful but i would certainly not endorse even i can't even remember what a lot of the stuff in the book was and i probably wouldn't endorse any of it because at this point I don't think I need I need that same thing, you know, and like that's why it's so hard to recommend books and talk about books objectively is because especially when you're talking about things that contribute to intellectual progression, there's times you need something and then you don't need it anymore. And then like if somebody else is asking about it and trying to evaluate it, well where where are they? what do they need? You don't know and it's it's subsumed into the into the debate and it, and it makes it harder to kind of clarify what you're talking about. All right, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna sign off here with a few uh, maybe one more question The Fred Hampton movie it's probably not going to be good I will say this though uh, there's this funny thing of people saying fuck this hollywood movie about uh, about fred hampton fuck off but then they'll be like and you know what they did this wrong and it's like hold on a minute what's the problem here you know is this thing categorically to be condemned or is it to be engaged with artistically if it's one or the other you don't have to you don't have to say both you know uh, nobody's going to think you're a sellout if you just engage with a thing as a work of art under capitalism attenuated at every level by that fact but if you want to condemn it, condemn it, and then just don't talk about its aesthetic qualities. What's the point? It's beside the point. You're implying that there's a version of this movie that would have been better, and then you're denying the material undergirdings of the endeavor of making a fucking film. I will say the one thing that... So people who are engaging with it artistically have seen a number of people annoyed that it appears to be through the uh, point of view of uh, the guy who ratted him out, the, the FBI informant, and not Fred Hampton. Uh, and I mean, the title is kind of a, of, a, of a clue there. It's called Judas and the Black Messiah. And people get mad at that. And I have to say, from a dramatic point of view, if, if you're just like looking to make a movie, I get, I, there are ways that you can make a movie about Fred Hampton where he's the protagonist, but I think it's a lot harder... But there are more, there are more artistically, the the character who stands out as the character who you would follow is him, because he's conflicted, because he has a dynamic within his character of being torn between uh, his self-interest and his growing devotion. You might say, well, that's, you know, giving him that credit is bad because he's a piece of shit and fuck him. If you make any of the characters like that, it'll be a bad movie. If you make any of the characters as one-dimensional as people on Twitter want to make every historical character, uh, it's gonna suck because Fred Hampton's going to be boringly perfect and that guy's gonna be boringly evil. And I have to say that these guys, people who say they want a movie where Fred Hampton's the, the protagonist, you'd have to show flaws. And are you ready for that? Are you going to, uh, how far can they go in the conflict in, in, in depicting a, com, a complex character? Before you start freaking out that they're doing propaganda and undermining his, his legacy. Like if if you, if you're sort of stuck with Hampton as saint, which the title implies, yeah, we are. And I think we are. I think given like anxiety of influence and, and the public space and people knowing what's expected of them, they kind of are stuck with Hampton as the saint. So then where's the interesting story? Judas, Judas, much more interesting than Jesus. And I guess you could try to make, like, a sainted Hampton interesting, but it's a, it's a higher bar. What are hot dogs made out of? Assholes and elbows. All right, guys. One more question, and then I'm I'm, I'm, I'm piecing out. Perhaps to dream, perhaps to mow on some nugs. Oh, I'll just end with this: the UAE-Israel thing. I'm wondering. I guess it's just evidence of like the lack, the fact that the UAE essentially doesn't have a public. It's got a royal family and a bunch of slaves. That they don't have to worry about public opinion the way the Saudis do, uh, and and so it's easier for them to just take the the fact that everybody at the diplomatic level knows, and everyone who pays attention really to anything knows, is that there is a that Israel and the GCC countries, Bahrain, UAE, and uh, Saudi Arabia, are. Uh, are allies. They might as well be in a defense pact. They, they've got their own NATO for the Middle East, essentially. Uh, and they're doing their own Gladio in Syria, and they have been for the last decade. And, and they're doing conventional like Kosovo-style warfare in, uh, in Yemen, only much more intensely horrifying. Uh, like, they have, a, they have an agreement, they're together. Uh, but that's not a thing that like, the public in Saudi Arabia would be able to accept. But since there's no public in, uh, in the UAE, I guess the thought was, I guess they wanted to do Trump a favor? Like, hey, Trump's looking like he's getting his ass kicked, doesn't know what he's doing, he needs a win. What if he brokers East peace? I mean, remember, he sent Jared to do that and his came back with something that no one could agree with. It was absolutely out of the question. And it just died on the table. Complete disaster. Another humiliation after building it up so much. These guys keep doing that because they keep not... Realizing how little they actually can do, uh, Dunning Kruger all stars a lot of them, but here it's like, hey, Middle East peace, just like Jimmy Carter got got uh, got got him on the table, got him to. It's like they're just taking something that was understood uh, and making it formal. They're just taking the, the conversations that had to be had, like on the non-government uh, line, can now be done on the on the landline. That's it, uh, and it's funny. I think it's I more than anything. I think it's a proof that trump wanted to win and asked them as a favor hey could you guys pretend to like apparently israel's big concession is they're going to stop expanding their illegal west bank settlements they're going to stop doing something that they are already enjoined from doing under international law wow and not even forever slow down wow holy crap Yeah, no. The orb picture tells you all you need to know about those freaks, and they're all allied with Israel. It's all one. It's all one block. It's a block opposed to the Iranian block, with Turkey in the middle, sort of in the trying to have it both ways. The great game, baby. You got the you got the American GCC Israel block, Jordan and whatnot, Egypt. Then you've got the the uh, you've got Iran, Iraq is a contestant point, and Syria hanging on there. And then Turkey for a while was pretty much firmly in the u.s Saudi camp but they have been over the past half decade after uh, uh, they didn't get the result they wanted in Syria they had to start intervening more are now uh, sort of playing both sides although they're still going hard at the paint against Egypt in uh, in Libya but that's I mean that's that's about border security Libya's right there they want to have make sure that they have uh, complete control of whatever government is in that area next to uh, next to the Egyptian border, especially considering that they've been in a low-grade insurgency ever since Sisi to Morsi and killed everybody in the square. Woo! Man. This is a long one. But I had fun. Might, have, might do one more question, but I am really craving those tendies. It's just I have nothing else to do tonight, so it's like but I'm I'm basically fighting my own hunger. All right, one more question. Oh, the guy who wrote the Bush, the guy who wrote the uh, bear about uh, the guy, the, the Bush guy, who wrote about who wrote the novel where a bear is used to have sex with women at like a brothel in Japan. I believe it was Scooter Libby. Let me confirm that. I'm not. I didn't check that first. I didn't cheat. I'm pretty sure using my my Bush era. Uh, blog memory. I think it was Scooter Libby. Yeah. It was. Booyah. Now, I remember all that shit, man. It's all in my head for no reason. Scooter Libby. That was the guy. There was a time... One of the reasons I was immunized, I mean, one of the many reasons, just time and experience being the most of them, but one of the big reasons I was immunized against Russiagate from the beginning, immunized against anything having to do with Comey or fucking Mueller, was that that has already happened before in the form of Patrick Fitzgerald and the fucking plane Investigation and that little twerp, Scooter fucking Libby. The amount of of attention that I gave that guy, the amount of psychic energy I, I put into his fate, because I thought it was going to break the whole thing open, and they were going to frog march, just like Joe Wilson said, they were going to frog march uh, Karl Rove out of the White House, and then he was going to flip on Cheney. Deluded. Delusional. Alright, guys. This has been fun. I never wore a Big Johnson shirt in high school. I actually avoided the graphic tee era. I respected them from afar, but I don't think I owned a single one. But maybe I should get some ironically. Like, I could be the compound in the, in the, uh... after the collapse of the East Coast wearing, uh... wearing track pants and a co-ed naked lacrosse shirt. And it still won't feel like the apocalypse. It'll feel like a Tuesday. Be like, oh, I gotta fight the Marauders again. God damn it. Fighting the Marauders is now, like, uh... It's, par- it's part and parcel with the whole package of being part of society. The market the market uh, sinews will not break. They have to be severed. All right guys, bye bye.